Hello, hola, and idahanya niduhenyu. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the fifth episode of the Naturally Ever After podcast. I'm so excited to be recording today. I This is the fifth episode. Like, that's a whole hand. That's like five fingers together. This is the fifth episode <laughs> of the Naturally Ever After podcast. Thank you so much for joining. If you're new, welcome. If you're returning, if you are a returning listener, welcome. My name is Nidia Guiti, and by profession, I am a licensed clinical social worker. In this podcast, I share ways to overcome emotional barriers in obtaining outward beauty. I firmly believe that mindset and perspective shifts how we think and feel about ourselves. So in this fifth episode of the Naturally Ever After podcast, I want to have, I guess, an addendum to the conversation that we had the last episode that I titled Systemic Oppression. This episode I'm going to title Microaggressions in the Workplace. And I want to be mindful of how the workplace is shifting because I used to, so long story short, I used to work full-time for an outpatient mental health clinic. And as of April 2020, or April of this year rather, well, depending on when you're listening to this, but April 2020 is when I resigned from that position. And have started working more as a contractor. So I have multiple jobs, if you want to call it that. But my primary job is working for a um, disruptive event management company as a consultant. And in that position, I get the opportunity to work virtually and on site. And then I also work for another agency where I do behavioral health assessments. But for the Anyway, I said this all to say (laughs) that my work is both virtually and on site. So when I think of microaggressions in the workplace, it's not just showing up to a job where you might experience this. People are feeling bold, I would say, in sharing a lot of their, their opinions about what's going on in the world and their stance. And again, rightfully so, because we all speak from our own experiences. So my experience is going to be different from someone else who hasn't shared my experience or hasn't lived what I've lived. But anyway, needless to say that these experiences can be conflicting and as a result can create a lot of concerns considering the history of the United States and how people have suffered as a result of Laws that have been passed in this country that are just flat out unjust. And as a social worker, one of the aspects of the profession is advocacy and advocating for vulnerable and advocating for vulnerable populations. And as a, as a black social worker, what comes up for me is the code of ethics. So in the social profession, we have, and I don't know why it's like this, but it just is. We have the National Association of social workers, and then there's the NABSW, which is the National Association of Black Social Workers. And I want to just reference their code of ethics because it's very relevant to what's going on in the world now, is very relevant to the profession, and is also going to lead to the discussion about microaggressions in the workplace. But anyway, in the and I'm going to post the link to um, both code of ethics in the description of this podcast. So the National Association of Black Social Workers says, I adopt the concept of a Black extended family and embrace all people as my brothers and sisters, making no distinction between their destiny and my own, which I absolutely love. It makes me think about when I was younger. So my sister and I, who I love to death, <laughs> my sister and I used to fight so much about like just stupid shit. 
we used to fight a lot. And anytime that we would fight and we shared a room, anytime that we would fight, I would move out. <laughs> I would move out into the hallway of like where where our bedroom was because I, I was just too disgusted to sleep in the same space. And my mother checked me so straight. She's like, you know, you're going to go back into that room because number one, that's your room too. And you're going to sort this out with your sister because this is complete foolishness that the two of you are not talking to each other. And my mom is one out of um, 10 children. So she would always say, if I can get along with nine other siblings, you can get along with this one sister that you have. And this is before the twins were born. So we would, that, that to me, it taught me how to embrace relationships. It taught me how to resolve conflict. And it also taught me how to, how to appreciate, appreciate the relationships that I have, but also want for myself the same thing that I would want for my sister. So, you know, in my, in our thirties, cause my sister and I are only 14 months apart in our thirties, like the, the relationship that I have with my sister is just great. Like we have our separate spaces. So, you know, we don't have to like fight or we don't fight rather about things that we used to fight as kids because we don't live together anymore. But I said this all to say that what I want for my sister is also what I want for myself. And I think that this is, this is one of the biggest disconnects in, in our country and our society is that people don't want for themselves. People don't want for other people what they have. People don't want for other people um or don't don't try to understand someone else's experience. So like I share like I shared before, the history of this country has been built on the exploitation of black people and the genocide of indigenous Americans. And when you have a country that's built on the history that the United States has been built on, it almost makes sense that things are happening in the way that they happen. I'm not saying it's right. <laughs> By far, I am not saying that it's right. However, when you when you consider the context of the way that this country was built and the oppression that has taken place to get it to where it is, things like microaggressions make sense. It makes sense why it happens. It makes sense why people continue to perpetuate them because now we're looking at... at at experiences, individual experiences that people have benefited from that culture has a lot to do with it, but also systemic oppression and and white privilege keep things the way that they have been to benefit a specific group of people. So I'm going to just share in this podcast what my experience with microaggressions have been and also the different contexts that play into um the system. So I was scrolling on Instagram, the good, the good, the good old Instagram. <laughs> There's always, I mean, sometimes depending on how you use it. And let me just add this. I think that social media is a good tool when you use it to your advantage. Do not follow pages that make you feel some type of way. Do not follow pages that perpetuate violence. Do not follow pages that are not um, conducive to your emotional well-being. And I say this because our cell phones are at the palm of our hands on a day-to-day basis. And sometimes you scroll and scroll and scroll, and um, these messages that we um, unintentionally but intentionally send to ourselves have a lot to do with what we prioritize and value. So if we're spending a lot of time on our phones and we're seeing things that are not helpful to us, again, it will make sense why we don't feel as good about ourselves as we do. I just wanted to add that on there because there was a time where you know, I just followed to follow and then I started realizing that like a lot of the messages that I was 
that I was seeing on a day-to-day basis weren't good for me. Um, And then when I started to unfollow a lot of pages that weren't helpful and be intentional about who I pressed that follow button on, like you have to be intentional about everything, everything. I mean, in general we should, but I think that relearning that has been helpful so that I'm intentional about the things that I allow to consume my time. Anywho, so I came across this quote on Instagram that says, you cannot call yourself trauma-informed if you do not acknowledge the systems that produce the trauma and the people who are affected by those systems. And when I read that, again, another side note, this podcast is for information purposes only and is to have a dialogue about issues and things that come up in the natural hair community by no means. Is this a platform or a space to substitute for therapy? I am going to add links and resources to the description of this um, podcast so that if and when you do feel like you or a friend could benefit from behavioral health services, then you know where to go. But this this podcast is in it. And <laughs> I just wanted to put that out there. Big disclaimer. But when I read this quote, I was thinking about when people say, you know, well, you have to pour into yourself. You know, you have to... You know, prioritize your needs, self-care Sundays, all these things. Yes, yes, and yes to all of that. But we also need to look at the system that is set in place and how some people have access to certain things and other people don't. Some people don't have to think about certain things when they move around in the world. And I'll I'll segue this to microaggressions and how that plays out in the workplace. So microaggressions is defined by like everyday verbal and also nonverbal cues that are intentional, sometimes they're unintentional, to communicate some kind of hostility, derogatory, or negative messages to target a specific group of people based on appearance. So an example of microaggressions could be um, one time I was at a restaurant, and I would say a mixed crowd, but for the most part, white, and you know, multiple people were walking past this table that was close to the door and the uh, this woman's, it was a couple, older couple, this woman's purse was um, on the bar stool. And again, the door's right there. So multiple people walking by, walking by, and then I walked by and then she moved her purse to another, to the other part of the table where she was sitting. That's That's an example of a microaggression because it's not to say that, you know, well, you could look at this in different ways. The fact that your purse was by the door in a public space where people are walking by is the unsafe situation in general. Now, if the reason why you move that purse is because a person of color or a specific person that you feel might potentially be a threat walk by, then that makes it a microaggression because now it's no longer about, oh, you know, my purse can be snatched by anyone that's walking by because that's true. But this this particular person is walking by Now I need to move said item because I feel unsafe. Another example of a microaggression. Oh, this is a big one. Being followed around in the store. I remember one time I went to Barnes and Nobles. No, was it Barnes and Nobles? It was Borders. It was a long time ago. I don't even know that Borders are open anymore. But anyway, I was at a Borders with my girlfriend and I was looking for a book. And for the life of me, I could not find it. So, you know, you're walking through aisles, reading sections. I can't find the book. And then I jokingly said to her, when when I need help, I'm not being followed. And there was th- these group of people like nearby that laughed when I said that, like like a nervous chuckle. Like, 
oh shit, it's true that, you know, you may need help, but it's, it's messed up that the reason why you would typically be followed, um, is not because you need help. It's because people are going to assume said thing about you. Another microaggression that comes to mind is, um, so I'll use myself as an example. I was born and raised in the Bronx, New York. My parents are from Honduras. We identify as Garifuna. And granted, I was born in the United States. English is not my first language. My first language that was um, spoken at home is Garifuna. Spanish is, I would say, I guess language 1.5 or like my second language. I understand Garifuna. I speak Spanish fluently. So let's just say, well, yeah, Spanish is the language that I speak fluently. So when I tell people, you know, Spanish isn't my first language, I learned English like in fourth, fifth grade. It's like, oh, like, so where were you born? I was born here. (laughs) I was born in the United States. The only reason why I don't speak, the only reason why English wasn't my first language is because my parents didn't speak English at the time, or they didn't speak it well enough to teach it to me. And my mother said to me, you know, I understood here and there, but I wanted you to learn. I didn't want, I didn't want to create a space where you were learning butchered English and then had to go back and fix it. So it was almost like, well, you're going to just know what you know while you're at home. And then when you go to school, you're going to learn that better. And I mean, I guess in some ways she was right, but even then my, my English still wasn't great. I mean, even now, you're, I, I believe I'm a forever learner. So there's always something for me to build on. There's always something for me to learn, unlearn, and relearn about the English language. I think, if anything, as an adult, I've gotten better at it because of what's accessible to me. So when I was younger, if there was a word that I didn't understand, I would like look it up in the dictionary. I don't know if y'all remember encyclopedia sets, but I had a whole bunch of those. So like, if it wasn't there, then I, I didn't. I didn't have access to the information. Now that we have the internet, like you could look up a word easy breezy without having to scroll through like hundreds and hundreds of pages to find a specific word. Another example of a microaggression that comes to mind for me from like an academic standpoint, I remember going to um, the University of Vermont and I was flying to Vermont was always. Um, <laughs> a comical experience for me because like once you make it to this certain part of the airport and you're looking at where people are sitting a lot of people a lot of brown people are not on that flight there will be times where I'm flying to Vermont and I'm either the only black person on the flight or one of two or one of three and I remember I was sitting next to a family this was like my freshman year definitely my freshman year and um they asked me because I had a, a UVM shirt, something that said UVM on it. And they, I was asked by the family if, well, it was a mom, but I, I was asked if I had a basketball scholarship. And I'm like, I don't even play sports. <laughs> like, why, why is that the immediate assumption? So these are just examples of what microaggressions are. And Well, these are examples of what microaggressions I have experienced. They may look different for you. You may have experienced them in a different way. But needless to say, the experience of these microaggressions have shaped how you have moved throughout the world. I know that it has for me. 
And I'm as I get older, and especially in the social work profession, you learn to meet people where they are. People say and do things based on their limited experiences or just their experiences in general. And it takes a lot of courage to 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 face what you've been conditioned to believe, um, unlearn a lot of these maladaptive behaviors, um, relearn things that maybe you may not have used. And most importantly, be open to learning new things. And I think that that extending that grace to people, especially when they are displaying some level of curiosity about wanting to learn, wanting to learn about different groups of people outside of their own. And I think that it speaks to it speaks to the lack of education that's made readily available to to learn these things being trained I know for me being trained in the social work profession and you know making it to finally get a master's degree it wasn't until I was I think it was like my junior year in college at the University of Vermont where I took a class called Caribbean Food and Culture where I learned about the Garifuna people in an academic setting so I, I needed to go through kindergarten to 12th grade and two was it yeah three two and a half years on three years two and a half to three years of college to finally be taught about my people formally and I think that I mean it's gotten better as I've gotten older but it just speaks to how history is rigged in some ways like you teach and you see and you know what the oppressor wants you to know about And then unless you're seeking certain information, it's not going to be something that you learn in a a basic classroom setting. So I say this to say that when we are around people, it's important to be mindful of what that person's experience has been. The same way that we would want people to understand what our lived experience has been is also important to recognize what their lived experience has been. And for me, that's grace. That's compassion. Because I think that a lot of people, myself included, we're validated in the anger that we feel. Um, And one of the things that I've learned in this journey is that anger wants me to know something. It's an indicator that something has to shift. It's an indicator that something has has to transcend. And it's information. So with that information that I have accessible to me, what do I want to do with it or what do I need to do with it in order for this emotion that I have to not take on an overactive role? Which leads me to today's topic, finally. (laughs) So I was listening to the Joy Social Work podcast, shout out to Joy, and in the podcast, in the most recent podcast, um, Part of the conversation geared towards the diaspora that's represented by Black people. And in the United States, in American history, you would typically learn about African Americans as if that is the only group of Black people that exists. And, you know, being dis- and them being descendants of Africa, of African people. And then in that, growing up for me, I know that what was cut out from that was Afro-Caribbean um, people of African ancestry in Latin America. And it's just like, that's not, African-American history is not my history. However, 
massive comma, the fact that my parents immigrated from the United, from not the United States, that they immigrated from Honduras to the United States adds multiple layers, adding the immigrant experience, but also the the black experience in the United States. It's almost like they inherited more without necessarily being descendants of of Africans in the United States. They are, they are descendants of Africans, but the experience is different in another country. So when I think about what my work experience has been um, as a daughter of immigrants who speaks more than one language, who phenotypically appears, I mean, is black, I'm definitely black, but my experience is not that of my, my counterparts who have been born and raised and have lineage in the United States as African-Americans. And I'll give an example of what this experience looks like in the context of microaggression. So one of my first jobs um, in the behavioral health space, I want to say like definitely early on in like my natural hair journey. So we're looking at like 2011, 2012. Yeah, because this was like right after grad school. And I worked at an agency that serviced uh, a dense, you know, Latino population. And I was I was probably one of the youngest people on staff, which, again, another layer. <laughs> but definitely one of the youngest people on staff with one of the biggest caseloads because I spoke Spanish. And the people that were assigned to me, just by looking, did not assume that I spoke Spanish fluently in the way that I did until they heard me speak. And the conversation will always be geared towards, oh, like, where did you learn how to speak Spanish? You you articulate yourself really well in Spanish. Um, and then as people got comfortable, it was almost like by looking, initially the, the guard was up because it's like, you know, I don't, I don't want to meet with, I don't want to meet with you. You're young. Um, and the underlying tone, and I feel like this is a conversation for another podcast too, but the underlying tone for me, and again, I'm only speaking about my experience, is that being black was something that a lot of the people that I was working with felt comfortable with. And I'll say this because I was constantly questioned, you know, well, where did you go to school? How long have you been doing this? Um, do you really know like how to work with, with people like me? And I felt like the other colleagues that I had who, who had just as much experience did not, did not, were not questioned in the way that I was. And what was the difference between us? And skin color had a lot to do with that. Racism in the United States. I mean, this is like the main topic of discussion because I live in the United States, but racism in Latin America is rampant. And when I think about race in the context of the United States is one thing. And then when I think about race and ethnicity in the context of Spanish speaking countries in Latin America, it's almost like it's just so multi-layered. And anywho, at this job, I remember having a supervisor and this person was a lot lighter than me from a Spanish speaking country. And in our supervision sessions, so time-wise context, this was like maybe 2000, 2011, 2012, definitely after grad school. But in our supervision sessions, 
I would notice that their attention would be directed towards my hair. And for my natural people listening to this podcast, you can tell when someone is not looking at you. And when I say you, I mean your eyes, like focusing on what you're saying, but their their attention and their eyes are elsewhere. So it's almost like you're looking at them, you're, you're talking about blah, blah, blah. And it's almost like their eyes do this like up and down motion because they're constantly looking at something else. And there were times in our supervision sessions, depending on you know, how my hair was, because I was still like transitioning in a lot of ways. Like I stopped relaxing my hair in 2007 and we're talking about 2010, 2011. So this is like four, four and a half, five years post um, my last relaxer. Um, I still have some heat damage, still learning different styles. Sometimes my, my hair cooperates, other times it doesn't. And then I'm also like living life as, as this is happening. This is another thing to like be mindful of in the natural hair journey. Your life doesn't stop because you're learning something new. You kind of just, you know, roll with it. And as I'm going to work and just ex- going to work in this new professional space, but also continuing to live my my life authentically and showing up every day. You know, sometimes, sometimes, depending on who you ask, the hairstyles would look nice. And then other times it's like, okay, try again. Or at least that's the way I received it. But this person felt comfortable and vocal enough to share what they felt about what my hair looked like that work. And one time at a supervision session, I think I, I, um, I got like a, a, a silk press and a trim and very very rarely do I ever wear my hair straight like that's just for for different reasons number one I don't I don't really like when my hair is straight because there's a lot of maintenance to keep up you know I don't my hair because it is natural now if I sweat like the roots get puff up get puffy and it's just like a lot of work to keep it straight I prefer my hair in its natural state I prefer my hair in its natural state because I don't have to do so much maintenance to it at this particular time, my hair was straight. I showed up to my supervision session, and the the acknowledgement was my hair. It's like, oh my gosh, your hair looks so nice. I like it better straight. And I just remember pausing. And you know, like when you have like that that gut feeling where it's like, what? Did you just say that? And then you almost start to minimize the feeling that you have in the moment. It's like, okay, well, this person doesn't know me. Maybe they're just saying this to say this. And I was at that particular position for like two and a half years. And it happened multiple times. I want to say for me, like when the third time rolled around, I I learned to, (laughs) I learned to use my words carefully, but I was still being a smart ass in the way that I said it. Cause it was just like, well, what do you mean by you? Like, like my hair looks better straight. Like I'm confused. It doesn't, it look fine all the time and it's like then this is when people start dancing around in circles because it's like you know I know what you meant you know what you meant now having to explain what you meant now now you're mud now you're treading in um sticky waters or like you're you're treading in mud at this point because now you have to kind of go back and clean up what you said so that it doesn't come off as racist or bigot not bigot I don't even know how to use the word bigot in this context but y'all know what I mean or even like prejudice. So it doesn't come off wrong or it doesn't come off as offensive. But the reality is it's like, um, it's too late. <laughs> like the damage is done. At that point, I already felt some type of way. And I think that in my, like for my personal um, growth and 
just learning because that's really what life is. Life is, in my opinion, the opportunity to learn, unlearn, and just relearn. And for me, I was relearning how to be my true authentic self, but also in spaces where I didn't think that I had to, I had to be intentional about doing that. I was, I'm thankful that at the time I was courageous enough to even ask the question because, so I feel like it affected me in two ways. Like, yes, I was courageous. Yes, I asked the question. Yes, I challenged his notion of it. Did he do it less? No, but I brought it up. And I think that it's important to just bring it up so that I don't have to look back on that memory and wonder how things could have been different um, in spaces like that had I spoken up sooner. And not so much so that I benefit from it, so that for me it was more so if someone else works in this space and has this same person, this person is now mindful of how they speak about um, someone else's appearance because of the the interactions that they've had with me. Um which kind of goes back to like the NASW code of ethics. Like what I I want for my brothers and sisters, what I want for myself. And this is to work in spaces that are culturally diverse, but also with people that have been checked, have been checked in the past so that they think about how they treat people and are also intentional about their words. And for me, this is what planting seeds is all about. Like you plant a seed, you don't see the fruit on the same day. Planting seeds sometimes is not so that you experience the benefit or or so that you yourself reap the benefits of of the of planting it. It's so that sometimes other people reap the benefits of that, but it's because you you're the one that initiated the conversation. Now, because I was working at this place, you know, and I wanted to keep my job, I was kind of like in this in this weird space where it's like, you know, I want to continue to be myself. I want to, you know, continue learning how to style my, my hair in its natural state so that I feel beautiful in general, but also so that I can... I can embody for the clients that I was serving how to authentically be yourself. And I think that this is one of the things that, and I'm speaking to like the therapists that are, that are, um, well, not only therapists, but anybody that's in the, in the business of providing some kind of service, you have to literally embody what you're teaching other people. It will be completely hypocritical of me to to promote self-care, to promote um, how to live authentically, how to feel good about yourself if I myself am not living that. So at, at this particular job, I was I was in this in this weird space of like, you know, how do I still be myself in this workspace? And also acknowledge the fact that I feel bothered by this supervisor that um, feels feels and is comfortable enough to make comments about something that naturally grows out of my scalp as if it's okay to just be inappropriate in that way. And it left me in a in a sticky situation because again, like I said, I wanted to, you know, continue to be my authentic self and also be an example for the people that I was serving that you can be successful and authentically yourself. Um and I will admit that in in that process for me, eventually I feel like I've learned to just show up at myself and not question it in the way that I used to. But at that time, I was just like, there will be some mornings where I'm getting ready for work and it's just like I'm looking at the gel and the gel's looking at me. <laughs> and we're doing this stare down about, you know, do you want to shellac your hair to your head today so that it's like super smooth and, you know, you go to work almost blend in and unnoticed or are you going to just be you?
And there were some times where I looked at the gel, the gel looked at me and I shellacked it. Now, I, I, I will say this. There's nothing wrong with like wearing a slick bun to work. I think that the issue is more so the, the underlying feeling behind why you're doing that. And that to me was my concern. Like I'm doing this so that my hair is not the the topic of discussion that day. I'm doing it so that um, I'm not giving this person, um, I guess, material to now deflect from what we're here to do. And that was, you know, a journey within itself. And the contrast, the, uh, the the contrasting experience that I had when I moved to Atlanta, and I think that this is the beauty of being in a city that is predominantly black, is that I didn't have that experience here. I remember going to um, the last job where I was, and I was at the interview with the CMO, the chief medical officer, the program director of the program that I was going to be working in. And I think it was like the, the, the PI, no, not PI, the QA quality assurance um, manager or director. And that morning when I went to that job interview, it wasn't even a thought that I was going to wear a twist out to this interview. It wasn't even a thought. Um and it took years for me to get to that space. And I'm saying this all to say that it takes time for you to feel comfortable. It also takes time for you to develop the necessary skills to check people because <laughs> it needs to be done. And it may not even be that you're going to benefit from having these conversations. It means more that other people coming behind you are going to benefit from the seeds that you've planted in these workspaces about what's appropriate and what's inappropriate to say to say to people in these kinds of settings. I also think that to kind of just add the virtual space, um, I know that as a contractor, I've been having a lot of telehealth sessions and I throw on my wig. Um, I haven't specifically had the the experience where someone was saying something that made me feel uncomfortable, but I've definitely been working with people who have been affected by virtual bullying in the workspace. And one of the things that we've been processing in the times that we've been working together is, you know, how do you address this? I mean, and it's no different from addressing it face to face like I did when I was working this first job in my career. Um, in the behavioral health space. It's no different from saying it face-to-face. I think that people, um, when we take into into context the the experience that other people have, the lived experience that other people have, it's easier to just say things to say things behind a computer screen. So I think that these conversations are probably a little bit harder to have in person because you get to read more. You get to read the tone. You get to read body language. You get to see the person and how they think on their feet. Whereas when people are just typing messages, and it's not to say that it's better, but again, just taking the context into perspective, when people are typing messages behind their computer screen, they are in their space. They're not, they don't, they don't feel the heat of having to look the person in the eye. They don't feel the heat of um, having to explain uh, a, a notion that doesn't make sense. When you say, when, when you say what you think out loud, I think that most things, it's, it's almost like clarity, certainly. Clarity just kind of comes up like, you know, this doesn't make sense, right? Or, you know, this makes sense, right? And then having to explain it. I want to say probably around this time last year, I created a journal called the Naturally Ever After Journal, Authentically Loving You, where I asked um, prompt questions 
to help build that part of our our sense of self to show up authentically in the spaces that we occupy. And if you're listening to this podcast, I'm going to put, let me see what kind of code I want to create for a discount. Um, Use the code HAIR, H-A-I-R. And then for the next 48 hours, there'll be a discount on this journal. And, And this is a gift just so that you can, Again, start to ask yourself these questions and also process a lot of why why you show up in spaces um, in, in specific ways and how to build that, that sense of being internally so that it can show outwardly. Yeah, this feels complete for me today. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Side note, I want to say this before I wrap up. This is the longest episode that I have recorded. So shout out to that. I'm going to be more intentional about not making it a 15-minute episode. But, you know, I like to get to the point and not not fluff. Um, But, yeah, thank you so much for listening to this episode, y'all. I look forward to our next conversation. Have a wonderful day. Adios.